0: Together,
1: right now, over me. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and you're listening to the Beatles Come Together because it's time for our regular Come Together series where we bring you the stories of unlikely people coming together and communities coming together to solve problems. We brought you the stories of progressive justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Elena Kagan coming together as friends with a late conservative justice, Antonin Scalia. We've brought you the story of a white Jewish New Yorker named Carol King coming together with the black Christian Detroiter Aretha Franklin for a song we all know, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman and also Coke Industries General Counsel Mark Holden and his friendship with a self-identified liberal activist named Julie Dumbo, who had pilloried big corporations and the one-percenters like him, but they came together in a shared belief in criminal justice reform and to change her life, too. It turns out, Julie had lost all of her limbs as a victim of an armed robbery, and her insurance company wouldn't pay for her prosthetic hands, only a hook. And so Mark Holden and his wife did what they could, and, well, they replaced those limbs for her, much better ones, and at the cost to themselves of $260,000. And today we're joined by investor and philanthropist Foster Fries, whose Horatio Alger story we brought you in our American Dreamer series, and today he brings us a coming-together story close to his heart. Foster, thanks for joining us.
2: It's, a, it's an honor to be invited, Lee. Thank you so much.
1: Well, Foster, you were in a town of only 2,200 people in what's known as the North Woods of Wisconsin. Uh, Talk about why you were there. It's a classic example of what many people consider flyover country, but not to you. What's the town's name, and why were you there, Foster?
2: Well, it's near Rice Lake, where I grew up, and it hardly flyover. Rice Lake is the center of the universe, so you just don't know it yet. But what you're talking about took place maybe twelve fifty miles south of there in a town near Shitek, south of Cameron, where a tornado ripped through and did a huge amount of damage uh, maybe up fifteen twenty million dollars, including a a uh, trailer park where thirty eight trailers were completely destroyed. I walked through it and it was just so uh, it was heart heart rendering Yeah, it's like walking through homes ankle-deep. There was hardly anything left standing. And so uh, uh, the governor of Wisconsin and I were flying from from, uh, Miami to Milwaukee, and he got the word that uh, this had happened just before. So we got off my plane and got on to uh, his plane, a state uh, plane, and we went up to uh, console the folks there. They were just uh, devastated. One young woman... Uh, Jewel Gavin lost her 46-year-old father, and he was the main fatality. 20 people went to the hospital, and when you looked at it, it's just amazing more people weren't killed. So I want there, with with Governor Walker, to to provide some encouragement.
1: And well, you did more than provide encouragement, Foster. And I think what was remarkable is, and I think we we don't tell these stories enough, was the help you provided. And obviously, you're in a position to help. And and talk about some of the folks you met, Foster. What you saw and and what you tried to do for at least some of them.
2: Well, the first one was Jewel Gavin, who is a lovely young woman who was devastated. She was at the shelter waiting for her dad to be bought on the bus from the site where all the victims were transported to uh, Mosaic Telecom, which is the company that set up a shelter to receive him, and he didn't come, he didn't come, and then she realized he was, uh, he was gone, he was killed. So I, I just thought, She's she's has nothing, so I gave her ten thousand dollars to try to, you know, buy some blankets and pillows and uh maybe some silverware or whatever she needed, some clothes and uh that certainly isn't gonna replace her tragedy, but it was just some way of letting her know that God loved her and so did I.
1: And I think in the end that, you know, folks witnessing that and folks experiencing that on both sides of the equation, Foster, have to feel humbled. I mean, what did t- talk to folks about what that scene looks like cuz for anybody who's never walked through what kind of damage tornado damage does, it is ga- it looks like a war zone when you walk through. When I I had the uh, I had the opportunity when the tornadoes Foster hit Tuscaloosa. I'm here in Oxford, Mississippi, and our church, I mean, and what people need to know about this great country is just how quickly churches respond and the American people, even those who aren't involved in churches, respond to tragedy and we don't hear these stories enough. And what I saw, Foster, was just a war zone.
2: Yeah, it, it was one of the more remarkable photos I took was the metal underpinning, a steel underpinning on which a mobile home sat. And it was, <coughs> excuse me, twisted in like an S-curve. It's just a huge metal thing was twisted in, a, in, a, in an S-curve. And there were all kinds of refrigerators and the, uh, a truck with uh, uh, smashed out windows and bent up. Uh, everything was bent on it. And then there was one car upside down on top of another car, and on top of that was a mobile home, kind of a three-decker. And you're you're right about the compassion of of, uh, of neighbors that come together. They're, they're they're picking through things and trying to find precious things to save and salvage. And ten, ten pastors were on site when the governor and I uh, walked through. And so there's, as the governor said in the press conference that was held, and, you know, people will not only need physical restoration, but emotional and spiritual restoration. One of my least favorite Bible verses, Lee, is James 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when various adversities enter your life, because it will build your endurance, which will complete your faith, so you'll be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. And so I'm just hoping that the the people that are experiencing this will down the road see something that came out of it uh, very very good, and and uh, I, I'm I'm hoping that the way the churches are reaching out to them will give them maybe a whole new direction in life when they see that that they uh, they really are cared for, and uh, I I just am excited about what what's going to lay ahead when I see the church uh, Red Cedar uh, Church that's already involved in doing so many things to help them.
1: And I think it's a story that can't go underreported. And by the way, no one ever asks what or how somebody voted or skin color. I mean, all the divisions in this country disappear in these, with these armies of compassion, Foster. And I think that's why so often the media is not interested in the end. The media is so interested in sowing seeds of division. When we come back more with Foster Freeze, our coming together segment, we're going to read a little something that Wisconsin State Representative Romaine Quinn had to share about Foster's visit. And then we're going to talk more about some other unlikely alliances happening in this country that you've not heard about, but you'll hear about here only on Our American Stories, Foster Freeze's story, when we come back. habib and this is our american stories we continue our conversation with foster freeze this is our coming together series and foster during the break you were talking about uh someone who had run a daycare center and you had been quite generous but talk about what happened in that act of giving and that act of mercy because it's always beautiful things that occur in this uh space where god's love is just it's just purely exhibited
2: well, well, uh, I heard from someone who had seen her since and said, "Gee, I I think I want to get more involved with uh, maybe attending church," and so that was kind of exciting to to maybe think that God was speaking to her uh, with, with with the love that everybody was uh, surrounding her because all these people from the churches and hopefully my my uh, comparatively minor fifteen thousand would also. I think I hope touched her to say, "Hey, why did this guy do it?" And I, there's no way that any of those 38 people who lost their trailers can pay me back. And I, I, I just love, uh, I, I love sensing that I can be a channel of God's love to others and be His hands and feet in a hurting world and a blessing to every person He puts in our path from time to time. That's why, that's why He created us all. But uh, sometimes I too often forget the, the mission He's given us.
1: And by the way, all of us who can't write those checks can give our time. We can pray. Uh, there's so much we can do. So those of you who are believers, always remember it's God's love. We're out to exhibit day-to-day in this world and not condemnation or conviction. And we talk about that regularly here on this show. Uh, let's talk about uh the uh, letter. I'm going to read it to you. It's actually a post, Foster, that Wisconsin State Representative Romaine Quinn posted uh, on Facebook Today, while touring the devastation with Governor Scott Walker, I got to witness God's love firsthand. Foster Fries, a businessman formerly from Rice Lake, walked up to a young 26-year-old lady who lost her dad and said he'd send her $10,000. The two strangers broke down, and they cried together. We walked a little further, and the governor came across a woman who ran a daycare who lost not only her home, but also her business. Governor Walker was moved by her story, and Mr. Freeze promised to send her $15,000 as well. There were no cameras. There were no news anchors around. When we finished the tour and gathered for the press conference, Mr. Freeze publicly stated he would be sending an additional 1000 for each trailer home that was lost. And there were 38 in total. When in front of the cameras, he made no mention of his private donation to the two women because that is the kind of man he is. Mr. Freeze travels the world talking about God's love and how he is called by him to help others. It is a sad day for many in our district, but the outpouring of love and support will overcome what has happened. God is good is how he ended that post. And again, that's Wisconsin State Representative Romaine Quinn. And if we had more posts like this by our congressmen instead of what we typically see posted by our congressmen day-to-day about each other and about our enemies, Foster, it would be a slightly different world.
2: I think... Maybe we're turning the corner now where people can realize that if if we want to be that shining city on a hill and being able to help the little girl that's currently digging through the Nairobi uh, dump right now looking for food, if we want to help those people, we have to get our own act together here and become unified and think about uh, not our own, struggle for power
1: it's so true foster i think and i try to point this out to all my friends i show them the nielsen ratings across the board and on any given day only nine or ten million people watch cnn or fox news and the rest of the country's watching something else and it's a big country so i think the media is missing the story of the rest of the country they tend to be involved as you said in gotcha politics and gotcha one-upsmanship and gamesmanship and I think the American people are tired of it. I wanted to talk to you about another coming together story that you shared. It was a video featuring the lesbian activist Donna Redwing and the evangelical leader Bob Vander Plaats. Let's take a listen to it and then get your reaction.
3: Well, a friend of mine passed away and she was all about reconciliation, always about reaching out to people and to unlikely people. When she passed away, I wanted to do something to honor her. And I thought, who would be the most unlikely person on the planet that I would reach out to? And it was Bob.
0: I'm the president and CEO of The Family Leader. And our mission statement is to strengthen families by inspiring Christ-like leadership in the home, the church, and government.
3: I'm the executive director at One Iowa, which is the state's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender organization. Uh, I've been an activist and an advocate and sometimes an agitator in this movement for almost 30 years.
0: Well, well Don and I, we see the world very differently uh, in our view on marriage, on sexuality, and probably on a host of a lot of other issues.
3: I guess you'd have to say that my impression of Bob was not only he was the opposition, he was the enemy.
0: Uh, I've probably made statements about her and her organization in the press. She's probably made statements about me and my organization in the press. We, we weren't natural allies. We weren't natural coffee buddies. And so she emailed the family leader and said, Hey, I talked to Bob, and Bob said he'd be willing to do coffee. Let me know a good time of day. And so they shared that email with me like, uh, Is this true? I mean, is this real? And I said, "Yeah, it's real," but I never thought she'd follow up on it.
3: <laughs> I never thought that he would respond.
0: And so we set a date uh, to have coffee,
3: and that was the beginning of this amazing journey. I remember walking in, just just being very nervous. I had no idea what to expect, none at all.
0: Well, you know, the skeptic in me thought she would have an agenda, and she probably thought I might have an agenda. But as soon as we sat down, I thought. She doesn't have an agenda. She just wants to get to know who I am. And that really compelled me to say, I should want to get to know who she is.
3: I think when people have the courage to show you who they are, uh, something happens. And so what surprised me about Bob was his humanity. Uh, He's an incredible dad. I also found him to be really funny, and I didn't expect that at all. But we laugh, we laugh a lot.
0: Uh, Donna's a very good person. She's a passionate person. Uh, She has advocated for her issues tirelessly uh, for over three decades. So regardless if I agree or disagree with her on the issues, I have a tremendous respect for her.
3: For a long time, I've been really tired of the hate and the aggression and the kind of snarkiness. We can disagree without being disagreeable. We can fight the good fight in the court of public opinion, but we don't have to hurt each other. That's, I think, the big takeaway for me. We don't have to hurt each other, because when we do that, we're hurting ourselves. We get coffee about once every couple of months.
0: And I think with Donna, her and I readily assessed uh, that we have a lot of common interest. Uh, We have some common ground the only regret in all of that is that i wasn't the one to ask her out for coffee Uh, and she's the one who asked me out and i'm glad she did but i kind of feel like i should have
3: what surprised me was not that he liked me i thought yeah he'd like me what surprised me was i really liked him
0: it hasn't changed my beliefs uh it may have it may have changed my approach because when we do put out a press release, when we do make a public statement, uh, many times I think, I wonder how Donna
3: will view this. Here's the deal. If Bob and I can have coffee, if we can tell stories and laugh and get to know each other, if we can like each other, then I think almost anyone can find that person in their life, and maybe they can reach out their hand and invite them in.
1: And Foster, what a great video. I mean, that's just the audio. To watch it is even better. A great challenge and opportunity for all of us. Why did you share this, Foster?
2: Well, it's, it's sort of the very epitomized uh, what I wanted to accomplish several years ago when I started left, right, left, right, forward march with the tagline, together we'll get there. And its mission was to unite people of opposing political views to efforts they both embrace. And I can't think of a better example than than this. And so I wanted to make sure more people saw the example that uh, Bob and Donna exuded. And, you know, Donna deserves a huge amount of of, of credit for being a real hero in the attempts to to be a uniter. And uh, if she can do that, my my goodness! I would think all of us uh, should have that capacity. And and I challenge all of my friends: Hey, who are you going to have dinner with uh, Friday night? Why don't you find someone who doesn't really like you and what you stand for, and and see if you can uh, build some bridges. And you know, we always congregate with our friends, but let's let's reach out and um, and and make something happen in terms of creating more unity in our country. We, we, we're we going to make a lot more progress together than we will divisively.
1: No doubt. Well, Foster, we always love catching up with you, and thanks for all that you and your family do in the space of just compassion, and obviously driving a more common decency between and amongst fellow Americans. Foster Fries, joining us for the common good.
2: Thanks, Lee. Have a good day. Have a, t- have a Philippians 4-8 sort of day, so now you have to go look up Philippians 4-8 and I want you to have that kind of a day.
1: I hope so. Thank you and you too. Bye-bye. Thank you, Foster. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. that time of year it's commencement time and this is our american stories this is lee habib and the team well they just cobbled together some of the great great commencement speeches some by famous people We had a couple from students that were extraordinary, and we had one from a faculty member of Duke University that was the most dreadful commencement speech of all time. So
0: bad it was good. It
1: was so bad it was hilarious, (laughs) inadvertently. So if you get a chance, go to ouramericannetwork.org and just find that Duke professor's commencement address. Today, this is a doozy. This is a good one. Uh, It was 2006, this commencement speech, at the Citadel, and it was no other than General Pete Pace. And he was a Vietnam vet Fought in every war since Vietnam He was a Naval Academy grad The first Marine to hold the titles of vice chairman And chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff And let's take a listen to how General Pace Begins that 2006 commencement address
4: Today is a great day We were in the tank yesterday with the Joint Chiefs. And I told them I was coming down here to do this this morning. And I said, what do you think I should say? And one of the unnamed chiefs said, just tell them you love them, shut up and sit down. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good advice. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say a few more words than that. To the parents... And family members that are here, especially the parents, congratulations to you. I know that today is an extremely proud day for all of you. And probably there's a tinge of financial relief as well. <laughs> but I know as moms and dads and guardians and brothers and sisters that when you look down on these young folks in uniform, that you must have enormous pride in what you have done to make today possible for them families are fundamental so fundamental in my belief that when I walk into my morning meeting every morning to the 15 or 20 individuals who are there to help me get the day started I always say cheery good morning family because to me Family is what it's all about. And I hope each of you here today, and if you do the math, there's about 400 graduates and about 5,000 family members and friends here. That speaks volumes about the communities from which these graduates come and from the families from which they have learned. Basic values in life. I hope and I know that everyone here in uniform will join me in thanking their families for your support. You. Now, for the class of 2006. Congratulations. You have worked hard and you have absolutely earned the right to start at the bottom. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. I'll guarantee you every single admiral and general on active duty today, and a lot of the retired guys too, would switch places with any lieutenant or ensign today. Why? Because what you are about to do, those of you who are taking your commissions, is simply going to be one heck of a ride. And those of us who have walked that path before you would do it again in a heartbeat.
1: Now you won't hear many lawyers telling a graduating law class that, folks. And beautiful words to hear. You've absolutely earned the right to start at the bottom. And this audience got the joke. They laughed hard. They understood it. Honor culture here at Citadel. Not many places left in the country like it. Let us rejoin General Pace.
4: But this institution graduates more than those who select to join the military. This institution graduates, leaders, leaders for many walks of life. And therefore, there are a couple of things I would like to say to you, no matter what you have decided as your path forward. First, grow where you are planted. Some of you are going to go to jobs that were not your first choice. Some of you in the military will go into specialties that were not your first choice. I guarantee you that wherever you go, there are individuals who deserve caring leadership. And if you will go to that job or that profession and give it your very best, I promise you that you will find it fulfilling and that you will continue to get promoted because there are more good jobs than there are good people. And those of you who tackle whatever is given to you with all your strength and all your heart will shine and will get the next good job.
1: What advice? Grow where you are uh, go grow where you are planted. Not go where your dream is and all the usual mumbo jumbo, I think, that many many commencement speakers well, they push on the on the kids. This guy's saying, look, you're gonna end up probably someplace you're not crazy about, and you're gonna end up at the bottom. Good. This is fantastic news. Happens to all of us. And then grow where you are planted. Reminds me of Cast Down Your Bucket Here, the remarkable speech that Booker T. Washington gave in the Atlanta Exposition, where he was telling fellow African Americans, you know, quit moving around, cast down your bucket here, get to work, build things, own things. And grow where you are planted. And we're going to come back on the other side of this with more from General Pete Pace and what I'd love to have you do also is go to Our American Network, Michael Bloomberg's speech at Harvard uh, two years ago and at the University of Michigan last year were simply terrific. And a friend of mine just heard the Robert De Niro commencement speech at the Tisch School of Arts. By the way, he gave a very similar tonal speech to the young people talking about life in the arts and how difficult it would be that they were Basically screwed because they weren't going to work regularly ever in their life. But he also said that's the nature of the beast. And that is a good thing. That's a good thing for you as an artist. And then at the end, he told everybody to be handing out his business cards because he was looking for a job. And somewhere in that audience was the next star director. What humility that took from Robert De Niro to say, hey, look, sometimes I still get rejected. And I'm Robert De Niro. And by the way, kid, here's my card. You got any jobs? Got a movie? Got a movie deal? Fantastic. And Peter Pace doing the same. He's not talking down to these students. He's not talking up to them. He's talking to them right where they live. And when we come back, you're going to hear an amazing story from General Pace about leadership, about him being planted from college and the academy to the killing fields of Vietnam. And what does a young man do leading men who've been there many years before? Hang on to your seats. General Peter Pace on the other side of this break. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, General Pete Pace's commencement speech at the Citadel in 2006. And he's just graduated from the Naval Academy, and he's about to become the third platoon leader in three weeks as he begins his first tour of duty in Vietnam. Let's pick it up with General Pace. Second.
4: Check your moral compass frequently. I have seen it both in combat and in peace. If you do not know who you are walking into a situation, you may not like who you are when you're done. When I was a lieutenant in Vietnam, I lost Lance Corporal Guido Ferranero from Bethpage, New York, a 19-year-old Marine, to a sniper, the first Marine I'd ever lost in combat. I was filled with rage, and I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper fired. Between the time that I called in the strike and the rounds were fired, my platoon sergeant didn't say a word. He just looked at me. And I realized I was doing the wrong thing. And I called off the artillery strike and we did what we should have done, which was to sweep through the village. And all we found in that village were women and children. I do not know how I could live with myself today if I had carried that first instinct forward. The time to decide who you are and what you will let yourself do is not when somebody gets shot, is not when your wingman gets shot down. It is before you get in that situation so you have an anchor to hold on to. This applies elsewhere. I have had the great privilege of watching and knowing real heroes in combat. I've also had the great privilege of watching and knowing great heroes around conference tables where the discussion amongst many very senior leaders, each very powerful in their own, own right, each very articulate in their own right, was going in one direction, And somebody in that room says, I see it a little bit differently and speaks their mind. That takes an enormous amount of courage. If you're wrong in combat, you may die. If you are wrong in a situation like I just described, where your reputation is on the line, you have to live with it. So when you walk into a room like that, It is well to have thought through who you are and what your fundamental beliefs are. Where is your moral compass? So that when the situation and the discussion starts going one way, you have already decided where you are. And the person who walks out of that room is the person you wanted to be the person walking into that room.
1: So that was point number two, check your moral compass, and what a story. Let's go on now with point number three.
4: Third, make decisions. In Vietnam, after we spent a couple of months in Hue City during of 68, my company went on a patrol. And my platoon had the lead point on the patrol. I remember getting to the first decision point and calling back on the radio to my company commander and saying, "Should you want to go left or go right? And he said, go left. I called the second time a little while later and said, you want me to go left or go right? He said, go right. I called the third time and asked him what he wanted me to do, and I got the butt-chewing of my life over the radio. <laughs> and basically, when you take out the curse words, what my company commander said to me was, Lieutenant, you are in charge. You make the decisions. I handed the radio back to my radio operator, Corporal Irvin, and I said, if the company commander calls, tell him I'm not not here (laughs) because I'm going to go start making some decisions. And I promised myself that day, 38 years ago now, that if I was going to get in trouble again, it was going to be for going too far. And I have gotten in trouble again. And it has been for going too far, and I've had a hard time explaining to my bosses who are chewing me out why I was smiling. (laughs) And I was smiling because I did what I promised myself I would do. I was making decisions. Fundamentally, it is true whether you're in civilian life or the military. It is easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. Just go do it. That's why you're getting paid. That's why you're there. Make decisions.
1: Brilliant advice. And here's General Pete Pace at the Citadel in 2006 with his final point four.
4: Fourth and last, and this is the most basic take care of those in your charge. Whether you're fortunate to have one, or a hundred, or a thousand or whatever number of individuals it is who are looking to you for leadership. Do all in your power to understand what their needs are and as best you can to provide it for them. You will not be able to do everything. You will not know everything. But if your subordinates know that you want to know what their problems are, that you do want to try to help even if you can't get it right your organization will bind together as a team better than you could ever demand and they will freely give to you more than you could ever demand simply by doing the right thing which is to take, take care of those in your charge I would like to say just a few words to those of you who are accepting your commissions today. Thank you. Your country needs you. We are at war. I promise you when you put your hand in the air and take that oath that you will never regret having done so whether you spend four years or forty years in uniform you will serve this country in a great time of need And your children and your grandchildren, when you look upon them, you will know what you have done, and they will know what you have done. This is a wonderful country. This institution has provided some of our best leaders, military and civilian. I congratulate you today for those of us on the stage who are getting closer to the end of our active lives than you are. It is great to look out on this sea of faces and to know that you are ready to take on the challenges that lie ahead. Class of 2006, God bless you. Congratulations.
1: Wow, what a, what a four-stage speech. Grower, you are planted, check your moral compass, make decisions, and take care of those in your charge. Follow those four. You'll have a good life. After his retirement ceremony, General Pace left to visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., this is just a little, a little bit of backstory on this guy. And they are alone. He left several handwritten notes with a set of his general's rank insignia attached to each one. He was a four star. By the way, that's a pretty big deal. Each note was similar to this one These are yours, not mine! Exclamation point, by the way. With love and respect, your platoon leader. Pete pace. That's what this guy does after he's done with the commission as one of the most powerful men, not only in the United States, but in the world. That's where he goes. That's the nature of the guy. These are the stories we love to bring you here on our American stories. and you can go to ourAmericannetwork.org and capture the, all of our commencement speeches and capture all that we do. And great work on this John and the whole team here at our American stories. Hopefully I can take care of those who, who serve all of you so well each day. we got a great team here. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our On Leadership series. And this edition comes to us from our own Alex Cortez, who sat down with Ralph Stayer, the founder of the sausage and bratwurst company we all love, Johnsonville Sausage. And it's the largest sausage company in America. And it all began at his parent sausage shop, with just a few retail locations. Let's take a listen to their conversation.
5: I always ask every guest about their very first job as a kid. Can you tell us what it was? How much you made, if you remember, and the impact it had on your life? Well, I just worked in the
6: sausage kitchen. I, mean, I did. I just working in the plant when I was uh, My summer after I graduated from eighth grade, he was paying me 50 cents an hour, my dad. And the next lowest paid guy was like 2 dollars and $2, five cents an hour. So I was kind of screwing around. You know, messing around. There was a couple other young guys working there, and we were playing jokes, practical jokes, and doing all kinds of things. And my dad was really upset with me. And he pulled me aside and said, "You got to work. You, you can't be doing this. You're you're telling everybody else take a screw around too." Yeah. And I said, "Well, pay me and I'll work." So okay, I'll give you two dollars an hour, which is still less than anybody else. Okay, I'll work. Okay, I'll work, and I worked. And uh, I learned from me to goof off to being the fastest, hardest working person there. And I'll never forget, I mean, we used to link problems where she had to twist them, make links out of them. And we, we were having races on the, to see who could do the most, the fastest. <laughs> All of a sudden I looked up and there was my dad looking at me smiling. And uh, that's the only compliment I ever got from my dad. The smile. Never said a word, but he looked at me smiling, and I uh, well, okay, this is pretty good then. So you know what that meant? Yeah, he was happy. that I was. He was looking at what I was doing, and he was pleased.
5: Ralph then went on to the dream college of many a Catholic American. The dream college that didn't let me in. So you went to Notre Dame, and you knew going in you wanted to work for your dad?
6: Oh, yeah. In fact, I was offered a fellowship. My senior year, I took physics I was an elective. I like physics. And after, the, at the end of the year, I did pretty well. And I actually tutored a bunch of athletes. But the physics professor pulled me aside and said, I've arranged for a fellowship for you at the University of Michigan. And I said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, why not? I said, well, because I'm going to go home and make sausage with my dad. And he said, he just, he was dumbfounded.
5: Did he probably think in his mind, why even go to Notre Dame at that point? Why do you need a degree from Notre Dame to go make sausage with your your dad? You know, a lot of people must have been thinking that.
6: It never occurred to me. No, that that actually never occurred to me. I'm sure the guy looked at me like I had four eyes.
5: And after college, Ralph did what he said he was going to do. This college grad was making sausage.
6: After making the sausage all day long, I put it in a station wagon and haul it up there. And we're selling a lot of sausage. Just a normal station wagon, too. Oh, yeah. 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 I, was, I, <laughs> hate
5: to, I shudder to think of how we used to do business.
6: And way back then, it was different, you know. Oh, yeah.
5: And it would all get much, much bigger. At the age of 25, only three years out of college, Ralph launched a wholesale operation for their sausage with his dad's blessing. And it's what we now know and see in our grocery stores as Johnsonville Sausage. And by 1980, their sales were growing 20% per year. All seemed well, more than well, on the outside. But on the inside...
6: Business goes boom, 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 it's gone. And and I'm looking at my business, and you can see. We're growing like crazy. I'm excited, but nobody else is. <laughs> nobody in our factory could care less. People are coming and going, you know, I'm hiring people, I'm losing people, I'm hiring people, I'm losing people. It's, uh, and they're careless, they make mistakes, they don't know this and I'm chasing my tail and running around here. I'm out trying to sell something. And then we got a problem with the ring blowing. it did smoke, right? I got to run back. What's wrong with this? And I'm, I'm everything. <laughs> you know? And I couldn't do it. And I tried all these different kinds of fixes. None of them worked. And I belong to this, it's called tech. It's a group of presidents we have them all over, and as you get together, 10 of you, and you get a resource, and you meet once a month, and you discuss problems and issues. The first meeting, when I joined, they said, you know, how many people do you have? You know, how many people report to you? One guy says six. Uh, get to me. And I'm listening. All this, listen, How many people do you have working for? He 150. How many report to you? 150. <laughs> 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 what well, I thought about. Yeah, 150. And I realized, and I started realizing it. And I started trying to change it, you know, and this and that, didn't really know how. And, and it, all these different things I like, was trying, and they, they always called it the flavor of the month, you know. <laughs> and finally, I heard this, at, because of tech, I heard this guy speak, Lee Thayer, who was a communications professor, but he was really about leadership and all that, and about people. And he was telling all these stories, and he had kind of a strange way about them, you know. And he, and, I listened to the first time, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll try a couple of those things. And I got some really strange results, you know, and kind of dismissed all of it, you know, because it's just a lot of a, because of him. But then, after trying a few things and thinking about everything, God sent him to me again 10 months later. Yeah. Through some other way, I hear him again. Then <laughs> the guy said, didn't you hear him the first time, Ralph? <laughs> <laughs> so afterwards, I went up to talk to him, and I said, uh, I'd like to hire you to consult for me. And he says, for what? I said, well, I need to help you help me fix my people. And he said, well, that depends. And I said, well, it depends on what? He said, well, that depends on what part of the problem you're willing to admit that you are. And... Obviously, this guy did not have a lot of
5: clients. (laughs) (laughs) But he was also independent from you. Unlike your employees, they couldn't speak that honestly to you. Right. Well, I'm just saying, the guy who was doing a lot of
6: speaking, he didn't have any clients. And I said, but he wasn't looking for a lot of clients. He was only looking for a client that could take that kind of, who could specter that and say what I said, which has got to be my fault. I have got to put all this together. I've got to hire all these people. I haven't got to throw them to this thing. I'm responsible. It has to be my fault. I have to be the problem. Not sure why, but I have to be. So, yeah, you can help me find it.
1: And when we come back, more of this great conversation. Ralph Steyer, founder of Johnsonville Sausage, and our own Alex Cortez. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Alex's conversation with Ralph Steyer, the founder of Johnsonville Sausage and an author on leadership. And when we last left off, Ralph met a consultant who led him to conclude that it was Ralph himself that was the problem in his business. And and
6: then I said, well, okay, help me fix this. And then he says, I can't. I can't help you fix what you've got. Well, then what are we talking about? So I can't help you fix it, but I can help you create something else, Ralph. In the best of all worlds, what would you like to have? Let's start there and work our way back. Most powerful question anyone's ever asked me in my life. In the best of all worlds, what would you like to have? I have thought about it for a little bit. Huh? well, I want the best sausage company in the world. You know, and I want a great place for people to work. I want people to want to work here. Oh, before I had seen this, between the first and second time, I said, oh, I'll prove, I'll prove that, you know, this is a family-owned company. People got to love it here. I'm going to prove this. I'm going to uh, run a, do an employee attitude survey. This is 1980. And the results come back. Exactly on par with General Motors, which right then was when they were having the Lordstown strikes and all the other labor unrest. <laughs> My employees' attitudes were the same as theirs. So that was a real eye-opener for me, and then he's talking. and So that's when I started understanding that it was all about me. Up until that point, it was all about, I want to get rich. I want to have this. I want to have this. I want to have this. You guys should all help me, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a great story about that. There's a fella who was a business in, in, in a big city, and there's this hill next to the city up high, and he takes his number right-handed person up on top of this hill, and he says to her, You see you see that, that right down here below the summit? You see that plateau there? He says, Yep. Can you imagine a house on that plateau, down looking over the city on the lights? You've got the sun coming in the afternoon. On the left, on the right side, sheltered from the wind, you'd have the tennis court. On the left side, where you get the sun all day, I know you'd have the swimming pool. You have all this down there, and there would be a huge house, gorgeous house. And she says, "Yes, I can see it. I can see it." So I tell you what, you work your butt off and Sunday; that'll all be mine. <laughs> And that was you. Yeah. And that was me. So that's what I had. Yeah. I mean, anybody stood around waiting for me to make a decision. Well, you start off when you have seven people. You don't need a lot of supervisors or stuff like that, do you? Mm-hmm. you can, someone has to just, so I'm the guy, I'm the, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm the only educated guy in the room, you know? And so I'm doing this, and I have, God gave me some gifts. I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm smart. So, I'm figuring this out, figuring this out, figuring this out, doing this, this. And you you just start doing that, you start doing that, you start doing that, you start doing that. It's bigger, bigger, bigger. You keep doing it because that's how you got here. And then you have to unlearn all that. And, but even if you try to pass it on, why would anybody take it?
5: Talk about that. You had a line in your book that you went from authoritarian control to authoritarian abdication. And how it did it work.
6: Yeah, well, Tom Pierce always used to say that. Just get out of the way. Well, I got out of the way and watched him stand right there. (laughs) You know? It doesn't work when you've been doing it one way. If you're the leader, people are looking at you for signs of what does it take to succeed. Everybody wants to Almost everyone wants to succeed, okay? Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people getting up in the morning thinking, gosh, I can't wait to screw up today. You know, not a lot of that going on in the world. There may be a few, but those are strange people. So they'll look to the leader for what does it take to make this guy happy or this lady happy or whatever. You know, what does it take to make this person happy? Mm-hmm. To please this person, what are, they, what are they looking for? And they're not listening to the words, they're looking at what this person does. So I had to absolutely look at my own behavior and start changing my behavior it wasn't about them it's never about them and if you were, if you say it's their problem well you have no control you lose all power when it's about them and not about you the only control you have is what you do and don't do so I had to ask questions rather than give answers. When People would come to me and start asking me, you know, what should I do? With I don't know. What do you think you should do? Well, I was wondering, you probably know better than I do what to do. And I, no, no I'm, interested, I'm interested in what you know. I already know what I know. I want to know what you know. What do you think? And, uh, uh, well, when you, when you have an idea what you want to do, come back and talk to me. Tell me what it is. And you had a sign on your desk that said, The question is the answer. And that took, boy, they come back in two or three times trying to figure out what I do. You know. Well, they all knew that what I really wanted. When I first started out, they all knew what I really wanted. There was no one I wanted to do. They should know that.
5: Ralph expanded upon this in his book, writing, At first, I didn't really want them to make independent decisions. I wanted them to make the decisions I would have made. Deep down, I was still in love with my own control. I was just making people guess what I wanted. Instead of telling them back to Ralph
6: it took a while for me to realize also that they had good stuff you know and but we got there, but it took a long it took a long time you, and, and, I, you, and I had to stay with it.
5: How do you get people to go from though being disinterested in owning it to actually wanting the control i mean that's a tough transition to make you know, unless you bring a whole new group of
6: employees, almost all of them made it a couple didn't but. The thing is, and those couple probably shouldn't have been there in the first place, I was carrying them. I think they always had ideas about what should be done, but I wasn't listening, interested in hearing them. So when I really started asking and asking and asking, they disinterested. It looks like that, but it wasn't, because they just knew that... I wasn't interested in their opinions. I wasn't asking. I was telling.
3: Yeah.
6: And so they they've been trained very well not to even
5: volunteer it. Ralph eventually realized that his mere presence deterred them from freely volunteering it, writing, I discovered that in meetings people waited to hear my opinion before offering their own. In the beginning, I insisted that they say what they thought, unaware that I showed my own preferences in subtle ways, my tone of voice, the questions I asked which nevertheless anyone could read and interpret expertly. When I realized what was happening, I began to stay silent to avoid giving any clue where I stood. The result was that people flatly refused to commit themselves to any decision at all. Some of the meetings would have gone on for days if I hadn't forced people to speak out. In the end, I began scheduling myself out of many meetings, forcing others to make their decisions without me.
6: So when we start really talking about what great looked like, all I ask my people to do, on the line, anywhere else, ask yourself, no matter what's coming up, is what I'm about to do going to help make us the best sausage company in the world? If you see product coming through that is not going to help us, shut the line down. I don't care what the efficiencies are. Shut the line down. I want only great product coming through here.
5: Or you're dead. Or we're dead. Ralph and his senior management team used to evaluate their products several times a week, checking it for taste, flavor, color, and texture. He wrote in his book, One Day It Struck Me That By Checking the Product, Management Had Assumed Responsibility for Its Quality. We were not encouraging people to be responsible for their own performance. This line of reasoning led me to another insight. The first strategic decision I needed to make was who should make the decisions. On the theory that those who implement a decision and live with its consequences are the best people to make it, we changed our quality control system. Management stopped tasting sausage, and the people who made the sausage started. And it surprised me how readily people accepted this ownership. They formed teams of workers to resolve quality problems, and the results were amazing. Rejects fell from 5% to less than 0.5%.
6: Then people came to went, well, if you we want to be the greatest sausage company in the world, you've got to fix those vending machines. That's, that crap in there is terrible. I said, I don't even eat other vending machines. Uh, you guys should fix them. Well, how would we, do? we don't know how to do that. I said, well, I'll send in the vending companies and you talk to them about what you want. You pick the one you want. Why should I be? You should be doing that, you know. Vacations, we week, get over there. But you know we gotta make the sausage, okay? You guys organize how you ever however you want to do it. It's not gonna be seniority. no señor. You guys figure it out. There are all these different things, all these issues that they dealt with. Sit down. What would you like to do? What would what would it take to make this the best place to work?
1: Ralph Stayer, founder of Johnsonville Sausage. On Leadership with Alex Cortez. After we continue, this is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and we continue with Alex's conversation with Ralph Steyer, the founder of Johnsonville Sausage. And boy, Ralph's got to be grateful he bumped into this consultant because this consultant changed his life. And by the way, so many consultants, boy, stay away from them because they're not going to tell you the truth. They're going to lie to you and collect a retainer. But this one told Ralph the truth. You're the problem. Let's pick up where Alex left off.
6: And in the meantime, I started paying a percentage of the profit as bonuses. So they're all, everyone's on the profit wagon, you know?
5: Everyone now had the same incentive for greatness. But
6: all these different things, if you understand this has to happen, right? Because if this doesn't happen, there won't be anything for anybody. Yeah, we get that, okay. Well, understanding the constraints, how do you want to do it?
4: I don't
3: care.
6: What's good for you guys?
5: I'm
4: the boss,
6: and I don't care. <laughs> I just want you guys to be happy. Understand that it is work. You got to work. So, understanding that, what? How do you want to organize? Whatever. All I, all I want is to be the best for you guys. So, how do you want to do it?
5: And you guys did it in such a radical way. I couldn't believe, Ralph, when I was reading the book, giving them control of hiring, firing, and you mentioned bonuses, like them set up the structure. Yeah. I mean, talk about some of these things. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, is there any other company giving employees that much control? Well, at that size, too.
6: No, I don't think so. But, you know, there's always constraints. I mean, this is what it is. I didn't. Like the bonus program. It's just this percentage of the problem. And you gotta do it based on performance. We're not gonna splice it evenly. Gotta reward people for doing for making contributions. So within that framework, how should we do it? Let's work on this together. And I we was I was involved to ask questions and all this. So and we came but I did not design that. We all did it together.
5: In his book, Ralph shared the profit sharing structure their team collectively devised, writing, Every six months, we evaluate the performance of everyone at Johnsonville to help us compute shares in our profit sharing program. Except we is really the wrong word. In practice, performance evaluations are done by the employees themselves. For example, 300 wage earners, salaried employees, fill out forms in which they rate themselves on a scale of 1 to 9 in 17 specific areas that are grouped in three categories, performance, teamwork, and personal development. These guys are thorough. Scores of 3, 4, and 5, the average range, are simply entered on the proper line. Low scores of 1 and 2 and high scores of 6 to 9 require a sentence or two of explanation. Makes sense. Each member's coach fills out an identical form and later... Both people sit down together to discuss all 17 areas. In cases of disagreement, the rule is only that their overall points total must agree within 9 points, whereupon the two totals are averaged to reach a final score. If they cannot narrow the gap to 9 points, an arbitration group is ready to step in and help. But so far, it's never been needed. All final scores, names deleted, are then passed on to a profit-sharing team that cars out the five categories of performance and bonuses. A small group of superior performers, about 5% of the total. A larger group of better-than-average performers, roughly 20%. An average group amounting to about 50% of the workforce. A below-average group of 20%. And a small group of poor performers who were often in danger of losing their jobs. Yes, people do complain from time to time, especially if they think they've missed a higher share by only a point or two. And the usual way of dealing with such situations is to help the individual improve his or her performance in enough areas to ensure a higher score the next time. But overall satisfaction with the system is very high, partly because fellow workers invented it, administer it, and constantly revise it in an effort to make it more equitable. And the person currently in charge of Johnsonville's profit-sharing system is an hourly worker from the shipping department. Back to Ralph.
6: I know the easiest thing is just give everybody the same. Then you don't have to worry about any conflict. But it's not fair. It's not right, and it's not going to help. Your employees
5: know that. Yeah,
6: it's a great culture. Well, i them. that. Yeah. but it's not going to help us become the best sausage company in the world because we have to acknowledge the people and we have to encourage other people to raise their raise their sights. What makes the best sausage company in the world? Having the best sausage people. Having the best people. You guys are making the sausage. You guys are doing this. The best company in the world has the best people. That's all it is. So how do we do that? Well, when you start having that dialogue with people, it lifts them up.
5: Yeah.
6: So it started as making the business better, but it also started with... The Bible, with all the stories about Christ, with the story about the talents and the mm-hmm. stewards, and understanding that this is what God wants. People want, he wants God, these are talents. He wants them to develop their talents and, and not to waste them. And I realized, and that's why I wrote, We have a moral responsibility to be the best, to, to develop our talents and be the best for all the people and all that. It's a moral responsibility to develop your talents. It's immoral warehousing people, condemning them to a second-rate life, enabling them to be, to not utilize their talents to help others. And it's it's a bad life for these people because God made us all. God made every one of us to use our talents to support our families, to, to serve God, to help others, to contribute they gave us all talent. It's all different, but they gave us all talent. And that's in the Bible, that's St. Paul says that, you know, it gave everybody different talents, but
5: so... You used to not really recognize your employees' talents in that moral way, and you eventually concluded, you wrote in the book, that you want to help develop the employees' talent and help them use the company. I found it was interesting that you used the word use, like let have your employees use Johnsonville to get where they wanted. It also had to get the company where they want, where the company wanted to go. We were really trying to develop that person's talent much further than the idea of Johnsonville. Oh yeah, and
6: if they go somewhere else, God bless them. We just had a couple of people leave and we got to hold a parade for them because they got big jobs elsewhere and they weren't gonna get them in the same time frame at Johnsonville. We just had a couple of very talented, and some people were upset about it. Isn't it wonderful the amount of talent we have that these big companies will hire our people to give these big jobs? Think
5: about that. That's rather big of you to
6: think that way. Well think about that though, guys. Let's keep it up. Mm-hmm. Let's make sure we have more of those people in the thing. let Some people are gonna stay, some are gonna go, but I gosh. But the senior vice president of uh, for Dyson for Dyson, you know. Our a our girl down there who was not even near that level in our yeah. innovation office in Chicago. She's now a senior vice president at the marketing, whatever, for Dyson.
5: You'd rather have that problem than the reverse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
6: I had that, my mom said, true in all this training and developing people, what if they leave? And I said, Bob, what if they don't? What if I don't train them and they don't leave? <laughs> and I'm stuck with all these people who don't know anything.
5: Speaking of training, I briefly mentioned earlier how Ralph empowered his team to hire and fire their colleagues. So, for example, the line workers making the sausage decided who they were working with. They were the ones living with the consequences, so it should be their decision. Well, when they made this change, that traditional personnel department was no longer needed. So Johnsonville replaced it with a learning and personal development team. To help individual employees develop their own starting points and destinations and how the company could help them get there. Ralph wrote, We set up an educational allowance for each person to be used however they saw fit. In the beginning, some took cooking or sewing classes. A few took flying lessons. Over time, however, more and more of the employees focused on job-related learning. Today more than 65% of all the people at Johnsonville are involved in some type of formal education
1: and what a delight and by the way the book the book is how I learned to let my workers lead the author Ralph Steyer on leadership here on our American Stories Ralph's story the final segment when we come back This is our american stories and we're back with the final portion of our latest on leadership feature alex's conversation with johnsonville sausage founder ralph steyer
5: you've heard ralph mention his christian faith throughout our interview and how it shaped his life and the life of johnsonville but now he really dives in
6: Catholic, I'm Catholic. So I'm sitting in church one day listening to just one more sermon about how the rich are going to hell and the poor are so blessed and God loves them so much. And I said, if you loved the man much, they wouldn't be poor. <laughs> you know, that's crap. And afterwards, I went up to the priest and I said to him, he was standing on side him, well, just once, just once, I would love to hear a priest give a sermon. Just like Saint Paul says in Thessalonians, isn't it wonderful that God gives people different talents? And He gives some people the talent to put together capital and to create products, and to create a business and hire people, and so that and pay them good wages, so that these people can work, and these people can support their families, and these people can be part of the community and support the community and and support the church and pay your salary, Father. Because he doesn't give those talents to just everybody. I never thought of it like that. I said, well, don't you think you should? Really? That's the last time he ever gave that stupid sermon. No.
5: A lot of people don't have courage enough, though, to have that conversation with their priest.
6: I've had it. But if I'm doing it just for the money, then yeah, okay. And I and I'm grabbing money, grabbing money, grabbing money. Okay. I get it. And it's all money, 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 people, nothing else counts. Yeah. Then shame on me and yeah, then I'm exactly what he said I am. But if I'm not doing that, if I'm building people, creating jobs, doing all this other stuff, oh and I am enjoying the fruits of my labor. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I don't mind the cash. Yeah. So Two more stories along that line. But I always worried about it. I was growing up Catholic, I always felt the guilt. Always worried about it, always About worried. your success? Yeah, and I prayed and prayed and prayed to God. And I prayed to God, and I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, you know, what do you want me to do? Should I sell everything and go to Africa? You know, be a missionary. And, because you know, these people are going to Africa and they're going yeah. to Canada. All the people doing all this stuff. Do you and, feel like
5: this chump who's golfing and- uh, Yeah. <laughs> And one
6: day I'm reading the link letter, which is our company's publication. And on the front page is a story about this fellow who he and his wife had just come back from Hong Kong. He was a maintenance person, mechanic in our company. And his wife had gone to Hong Kong to adopt a special needs child, and they had just returned. Wow. And the Holy Spirit came over me in a wave just washed over me this profound feeling that I can't describe it's so powerful and he said Ralph you're do exactly what I want you to do without you he couldn't do that you're providing all this keep doing but give me some credit <laughs> mm-hmm. so um that was a Friday. Monday morning we have, it just so happens, is, you think God doesn't have a plan. It's all, it's, every other week we have a, a strategy team meeting. Well it's fresh on my mind because Monday morning, this is probably Monday morning of a strategy team meeting, first thing in the morning. Fourteen other people that were besides me, and I tell them this story about how I know I struggled with it, what happened, and and what the and what he said, you know. What the Lord said about giving him some more credit, because I always kind of kept the God thing out of business. You know, that doesn't belong to business. Yeah, and, I
5: mean, you're a, you're a big company that's in grocery stores. I mean, there's got to be a fear inside of you. If I politicize this too much, if I religionize this too much, some customers uh, just, might leave us,
6: or whatever, or people, or offend yeah. people, or whatever, you know. And I, and I, so I said. I always worried about when I'm serving God at work, that doing it, you worry about that. 14 hands went up. Oh. All 14 hands went up. And I said, well, it's pretty clear that we've got to start talking about serving God at work. We have to become a company that actually does that. We have to acknowledge it. We have to acknowledge God and all the things we do and why we're here, what our purpose is, why we have a moral responsibility, because that's, God, that's how God made us. God made us this way, and if we're not doing that, we're going against God. We're not going to have happy lives. We just have to acknowledge that and operate that way. So we changed a few things. And then we had this tree with values. It's got seven values on it. And the roots, on the roots I put down, love thy neighbor. Just like Christ said, above all things. Everything we do is out of love for our neighbor, whether we're working or everybody else in the marketplace, our customers. Love it's all about love your neighbor. So, we've done that, we've done a whole bunch of things. So, that was the first one. The second one was this Holy Spirit thing. And then, oh, so to where I've gotten to a couple years ago, two and a half years ago, this. President Oscar Meyer came to see us. And uh, and we told him, if you want to talk about Brian Johnson, don't forget it. Don't even bother coming stop yourself. And I said to him and so he comes and oh hi Sam, how are you doing? Blah blah blah, blah. good to see you, blah, blah, blah. I said, Well, Good to see, why why don't you want to come see us? He says, well, you know, I just want to get to know the the new in the industry. I just want to get to know all the people better. You know, it's amazing. There's so many family-owned companies in this industry. He's treading on it because he knows he was told if you start talking about that, the meal will be over, you'll be thrown out. And, which I'd done to somebody else, so the word was out. (laughs) So he says, but you know, eventually family companies like, you know, they're looking for a way to get out or whatever. We just want to know people, and whenever that happens, we just want a great relationship. You know, Oscar Mayer never bought any businesses, but now we're in a position where we're going to, and so we, and I just wanted the whole company, everyone to everyone that Oscar and looking for different opportunities. I thought, oh, okay. Well, let me explain something to you, Sam. <laughs> the concept of selling this business for me is not a financial decision. It's really a decision of whether or not I go to heaven or I go to hell. Wow. Because God gave me this business. God put me here. God built this business using me for his purposes. And if I sell this business, that's all going to be gone the day I sell it.
5: Yeah.
6: And, and I'll have done it all. I'll have used God for my own purposes just for the money. And that for sure will send me to hell. But if I keep it and keep doing it, I don't know where it was, I'll go to heaven. So what do you think the odds are this is going to get sold in my lifetime? And he said, well, let's talk about something else. (laughs) Let's talk about what else we can do together then. And I had never thought about
5: that. Yeah.
6: The Holy Spirit put those words right in my mouth. Right then and there, the Holy Spirit told me, and he sent that guy. To see me, because dude, those are always back there in your mind. What if it doesn't work this way or that? What would I do? And the Holy Spirit sent that guy to me so that I could say those words, so I would understand exactly what was at stake. I, the Lord's always working in my life and yours and everybody else's. You just have to be smart enough to realize it. So. So this business is not for sale. This business will never be sold. And I'm working my butt off with my family, and I want to make sure it continues because it gets bigger and bigger. We get better and better at serving God and building people.
5: And to close, we went back to where it all began, his family. My dad and I always discussed everything and went through
6: everything and,
5: and came to agreement on stuff. It was it hard working? With your dad, I mean, a phrase I often think about is that we're, we're hardest on those we're closest to. I mean, I am, I am more vicious towards my younger brother than I would be to you because we have that closeness where we feel like we can be you know, particularly honest and hard on each other. So does that make it hard when you're trying to operate a business together and in, in keeping some of those family emotions out of it? Never. Never.
6: Never happens. Always had the greatest respect for my mom and dad. Uh, my sister. We ran that business together for many, many, many years and never had a harsh word. What do you attribute to that? Well, you love your parents, you respect your parents, they love you, you and your sister, and, the, and, their, and her feelings and their are more important than the business. And it's not about a pride thing. It's not about an ego thing. It's just you work together, you know.
5: And Ralph, you're almost, almost tearing up thinking about them, I can tell. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. was a lot of great memories. And there you have it. What a story. I'm tearing up myself. What a way to live life. Ralph's teaching all of us a lot. And how often do you hear... Men running businesses with 1,400 employees, the largest producer of sausage in America, nearly 1 billion in yearly sales, telling the titan of the industry, Oscar Mayer, ain't for sale. God says no. God says no. This is Our American Stories, Ralph Stayer's story, Johnsonville Sausage's story, and Alex, as always, great job on these stories about ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things, and often because of their faith, not in spite of it.